0: Listeners, I don't know if you can hear me, but if you can, this is the audio diary of Aaron Lockman. I believe I have been catapulted through time. I'm going to need you to carry a message to my roommates. Please, this is of the utmost- On the morning of Saturday, October 8th, 2011, I woke up at around 9 in the morning, with the knowledge securely planted in my head that the world was going to end in less than thirty-two hours. I did not question how this information came to be in my head. I merely got out of bed and tiptoed down the narrow, carpeted stairway of my dad's apartment. For breakfast, I ate the five remaining Tofutie Cuties that were left in the freezer. There was no longer any need, I reasoned with myself, to watch my figure. The only problem I contemplated as I ate my extremely nutritious meal was that my brother was the one with the spaceship. And as much as I did not want to die, I also did not fancy zooming through outer space with him for the rest of my life. Believe me when I say that I love my brother, but that he is much better in small doses. I knew, however, that I did not have time to go looking for another way off the planet. And so when I was done eating, I sat down in my dad's luxurious green leather easy chair in front of the TV, and I called my brother in his dormitory at the University of Maine. He answered on the fourth ring. Hey, Aaron, he said. Hey, Seth. I suppose you got the news? Yep. Real bummer, isn't it? Only my brother would use the word bummer to describe the sudden and painful death of all life on Earth. To be fair, I wasn't experiencing any of the outward signs of grief either, but at the very least, I wasn't throwing around words like bummer. Yeah, I guess, I said. Anyway, being the only other human who knows about it, I thought that perhaps I could snag a ride. Of course, Seth replied. Everybody else will be relatively clueless when the end comes, so the traumatic stress of it won't be nearly as painful for them as it would be for you, so yeah, you can totally come. Thanks. And… how much can I bring? I'd say a small suitcase full. You won't need food, toiletries, or anything like that. So long as nothing happens to the nuclear reactor, we can replicate as many human needs as we want. And don't worry about entertainment, either. I've downloaded every song, movie, TV show, and book from human history onto the ship's computer. Just bring items of personal or practical value. But, Aaron, he continued, there is one problem. What? The oxygen recycling systems on the Andromeda will only support four humans at a time. We can only bring two additional people. Okay. How about I bring one and you bring one? Aaron, the four people who come aboard the Andromeda tomorrow evening will represent the remainder of the human race. We will be the only four survivors of an extinct species, not to mention the only four beings in the universe with any memory of this planet. We must choose our traveling companions wisely. So, I bring one and you bring one? That sounds like the best plan. I almost regretted letting Seth bring someone, as I had no idea who any of his new friends at college were. And now I was stuck exploring the galaxy with them. But fair was fair. It was his spaceship, after all. But for that matter, who would I bring? I had only a few close friends at school— And the more I thought about it, the more reticent I was about only bringing one. My friends were the kind of people who loved living in the world around them. They were not nearly as detached as I. Was it kinder to let them die in ignorant bliss? It was a painful thought. But it was also a thought for a later time. Right now I had to think of useful items to pack. I went back upstairs and sat down on the floor of my bedroom. My bedroom at my dad's house was a plain, white walls and beige carpet sort of room, with a sloping ceiling that made it seem smaller than it was. It was also incredibly spare, and I realized as I looked around that most of my stuff was actually at my mom's house on the other side of town. The past seven days had been a mom week and the weekend was usually a transition time for all my crap. I grabbed my backpack, turning it upside down and emptying my schoolbooks onto the floor. I zipped it up, grabbed my bike helmet, and went downstairs. Seth's words ricocheted around my head as I biked through the small, sleepy city of Saco, Maine items of practical or personal value. What did that mean? What did I own that would qualify? The air was savory and cold, and smelled like barbecue sauce and dead leaves and the color orange. I rode through the winding residential streets, past the graveyard and the elementary school, Round, puffy clouds trundled softly through the azure sky. I noticed vaguely that there was no one on the sidewalks. Usually on a day like this, people were out, walking their dogs, jogging, or simply enjoying the weather. Come to think of it, I can't recall seeing a single human face that day. There were cars on the road, but I never looked at the people inside them. I pulled my bike into my mother's driveway, parking next to the porch we shared with our upstairs neighbors. The smell of cigarettes from the other apartment was overpowering, and I ducked inside with relief. I took my shoes off in the front closet and went into the living room, plopping myself down on the golden yellow futon. I sat there for a moment. I looked around and tried to feel what my mom's apartment felt like tried to feel the hardwood floors, the bookshelf full of vinyl records, the potted plants, the warmth, the color of it. I gave up and went into the kitchen. I ate some leftover stir-fry. Finally, I took my backpack into my bedroom. I had often described my room in that house as a broom closet with a bunk bed in it, Looking around, I found myself impressed with the sheer amount of stuff I had crammed into the small space—in plastic drawers, in underbed storage containers, in my tiny desk. Without thinking too much, I began rooting around and stuffing certain items into my backpack. A small, silver digital camera, a stuffed parrot, a stuffed cat, a green composition notebook filled with my scribblings. My toy sonic screwdriver, my tap shoes, a bright orange bubble wand, the kind you simply wave through the air in order to create enormous bubbles, my clarinet in its thick gray case, my talis, my prayer shawl, folded up inside its dark blue velvet bag, items of personal or practical value, all of them. When I emerged onto the porch with my now heavy backpack, there was a girl about my age crouching on the banister. She was not one of the upstairs neighbors. I had never seen her before. She was short. She had brown hair and a confused face. She spoke. Her voice was high and nasal and bright. "'Are you Aaron Lockman?' she asked. Yes, I said. Who are you? I'm not sure. Last week, my name was Rory. This week, who knows? She chuckled. What are you doing on my porch, I asked. And how do you know me? Those are good questions, she said, and I appreciate you asking. What year is this? 2011. Oh, good. I'm not too far off. What are you talking about? Are you a time traveler? Sort of, except the word travel implies that I have some kind of control over it, which I don't. Anyway, I really want to apologize in advance. I'm going to extract myself sometime soon. But I want to take a little time first. I hope that's okay. I don't know what you're asking. It's not often that I get to have a physical body. An apartment? Roommates? Friends? Don't don't worry, I, I won't mess anything up. You'll have it all back as soon as I'm gone. She was still crouching on the banister, looking at me with a pleading expression. She seemed nice, and kind of adorable, even if nothing she said made sense. You're just going to bounce around for a bit, she continued. It'll be fun, like a vacation. I don't understand. She turned her head sideways as if pitying me. I know, she said quietly, her eyes twinkling. I had to try. And then she was gone, and I had no memory that she had ever been there. I got on my bicycle, circled the driveway once, and rode away. I would miss the feeling of riding a bike, the swooping and swerving. Also gravity. I would miss that, too. I rode around Sako for a few hours, taking pictures with the silver digital camera. I took a picture of the windmill next to the river, of the shops on Main Street, of the old brick mills, of the Amtrak station. I took pictures of my high school with its wide lawn and rambling brick campus. And later, as the day expired, I took photos of the sun setting above the neighboring town. I felt a curious surge of emotion, and found myself thinking of all the things I would miss about this planet. I would miss walking in the woods in the early evening feeling the cold autumn wind on my face. I would miss being alone in an empty theater, lying on the stage and looking up at the rafters. I would miss the chance of ever being able to go to college. The thought of which friend to bring with me sprung to the forefront of my mind again. How could I possibly do that to someone, save them from death, but at the cost of everything they'd ever known. Every ordeal they'd been through, everyone they'd ever met besides me. What gave me the right to do that? The taste of Chinese food, the moon shining behind thick, white clouds, the sound of the freight train as it rumbled slowly through downtown. I knew what awaited me in the wild, black yonder of outer space. I knew there were alien civilizations that spanned galaxies, sights and sensations beyond my wildest dreams. But I found myself longing for the simple things. Back at my dad's house, I fell asleep thinking about who I should bring with me. A good night's sleep. That's another thing I would miss. It was about a day later less than one hour from the end of the world. I stood in my dad's driveway, looking up at a slender white spaceship descending from above. The Andromeda was a graceful vessel above all else. She resembled a pure white, contoured remote control with no buttons. She was about 500 feet long, and her engines glowed a brilliant blue as she hovered above the driveway. A hatch opened on the bottom— and a round blue funnel of energy shot down to the ground with a whirring sound i tentatively approached it just walk inside i heard my brother shout i complied stepping into the cylinder of light it was a curious sensation as if gravity simply no longer had any effect on me i felt the ground leave my feet and i saw the houses below me getting smaller I felt the way you do at that particular moment on an amusement park ride, when you're briefly weightless. But this was constant and serene. I rose through the hatch, and it closed beneath me. The gravity funnel switched itself off, and I plummeted the three feet to the floor. Aaron, how's it going? My brother was waiting for me, wearing his usual long-sleeved shirt and cargo pants— He seemed in an unusually chipper mood. "'Pretty good,' I said, looking around. The cabin matched the outside in its simple and elegant design. "'It was all so clean, so white, so sterile. I like a spaceship with a little personality, maybe a few carpets.' "'If you want,' said Seth, "'I can take your backpack to the cargo hold and you can make yourself at home.' "'Okay, thanks.' And uh, please sit in the co-pilot's chair. Nobody sits in the pilot's seat but me. Sure thing. The two chairs at the front of the ship were big and luxurious and fluffy. I sat in the right-hand one. The two chairs faced a curved dashboard with a sleek, oblong touch screen, through which one could access all the functions of the ship. In front of the dashboard was a magnificent view screen that spanned the whole front of the cabin. Right now it was on a screensaver, a field of stars zooming past us like in Star Trek. It looked pretty awesome on the super-ultra-mega-high-definition screen. The artificial gravity on the Andromeda didn't feel quite right. It wasn't as solid or concrete as Earth gravity. I felt slightly fluffy... "'sitting there in the fluffy chair and the fluffy gravity. "'Seth returned and sat down in his seat. "'Where's your passenger?' I asked him. "'Sitting in front of my laptop in the dorm, "'making sure this short test flight goes according to plan. "'After we're done here, we'll make a quick flight back to the campus "'and exit the atmosphere from there. "'Where's your passenger?' "'I took a deep breath in and out before answering.' I haven't decided yet, I said. Seth nodded. It certainly is a tough decision. How did you decide? Seth was silent, his face as unfathomable as ever. He touched the dashboard, and the stars on the view screen disappeared to reveal a live feed from the front of the ship. The familiar buildings of my hometown. I can give you five minutes, he said. We can do a quick flight around Sako and then you'll have to decide. He touched a few buttons, and we started moving. However, it didn't feel like we were moving at all. I could only tell because of the feed from the view screen. According to what I saw, we were making a wide swoop above the river, banking to the left. But there was no sensation of movement. I mentioned this aloud. That's the inertial dampers, Seth said. They ensure that the external movement of the vehicle doesn't affect its internal environment. It feels kind of weird, though. Like we're not in an actual spaceship. He smirked. If it weren't for the inertial dampers, you'd be a smear against the back wall by the time we hit 1% light speed. You want me to turn them off? No, that's fine, I said. We fell silent. The viewscreen showed a wonderful moving landscape of Saco, Maine, and the towns that surrounded it. There was a sunset, the last sunset that the earth would ever see. I thought about the inertial dampers, and about how even now I could not muster a feeling of terror or grief or despair at the fact of the apocalypse. I wondered if I was cruising through my life with the inertial dampers turned on high, enjoying the view but never feeling the sensations. How could I possibly make a decision when I couldn't feel anything? How could I choose one survivor when I didn't feel alive myself? Seth seemed to sense the significance of what I was thinking. He looked at me. Are you ready? I swallowed and looked out at the viewscreen. Yes, I said. But I wasn't ready. Not at all. Next time, on the Audio Diary of Aaron Lockman, we will discover... I might as well use this opportunity wisely. Ted. Who is Ted? What is his past? I am in the past. I can discover his past. Where am I? What is happening? The journal. Where did he get that journal?